Welcome to Newton & Co, an Eye for the Light podcast series where we put questions to photographers about their life in photography. I'm Chris Coe, and I'd like to introduce you to my partner in crime, fellow professional photographer, David Newton. David, over to you to introduce today's guest. Hello there, and welcome. Uh, yes, as Chris said, I'm Dave Newton, and this is another Eye for the Light podcast. And today, uh, we are honoured to have uh, Eamon McCabe. Uh, now, it's a name that will potentially be very familiar to quite a few of you. Eamon has had a very distinguished career in photography, and we are going to spend some time finding out a little bit about it, about what makes him tick, and uh, about his, his life and, and work and his images. So, Eamon, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. So we'll start off with, uh, well, with a, a very basic and easy question, but, but what is it that actually got you started into photography? What was your entry into photography? Music, uh, funny enough. Um, the music came before the, the camera. Um, I was 16, 17, and like a lot of kids in London, mad about music, uh, mad about The Who, The Rolling Stones, would get into any concert I could, push my way up the front and uh, try and enjoy it the best way I could. And then um, one one day I managed to get a, a ticket for the Who's concert up in Leeds in 1970, which dates me. Um, but I went all the way up in a Renault 4 pink van, I remember, which must have been worth about 200 quid. But I went up the A1. This is before the M1 even was um, you know opened. Got into the Leeds Poly pushed my way up the front with a Yashica camera. I can still remember a Yashica camera with a 50 mil lens with the old leather cap on the front of the, um, uh, the lens. Didn't know anything about photography. Music was my thing. I had a series of uh, numbers uh, as they were then. I didn't know what they did. I didn't know what the speeds were on the top of the camera. But uh, while the gig was going on, and it, it turns out it's been one of the greatest who's, who's concerts of all time. And there's me fiddling with the Yashica going, is it F11, F2, you know? And <laughs> so I go up and down the barrel, up and down the speeds in the, in the hope that I get something. I just wanted a picture of Townsend and, you know, and the rest of the band. And I took, the, in those days, you used to take your film into chemist shops, certainly in North London. And they must have thought it was a wedding because when the pictures came back, they were all in little buff envelopes like sleeves um, and I opened one nothing I opened another one nothing I opened another one nothing and I was really disappointed then I opened another one and there was a flash of red light just going across the frame and I thought wow this is great this is photography I couldn't see anybody but it, it had gone from blank to something and then near the end the proverbial story near the end there was a picture of Townsend up in the air with his uh, kicking oh, and the drum behind the, the you know, it was Keith Moon on the drums behind. And I thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It was so exciting. And also the noise was obviously, I, I was listening to Richard Thompson the other night. I went to see Richard Thompson play up here the other night. And he was talking about going to see the Who in the Marquee club and then you know there's 300 people and he was talking about walking home from these concerts because he'd make himself late and the enjoyment of music for people in London at that time um, we, we were so lucky that nearly every pub had a good band and here I am I've got a great picture of uh, Townsend leaping up over um, Keith Moon sadly dead a uh, long time ago now 
And that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But um, things changed. Wow. So we still, it's good to hear another Richard Thompson fan as well, actually. I saw him at the Royal Albert Hall just oh, before well, COVID. Was that his 70th birthday? It, uh, it might have been his 70th birthday yeah. bash yes it, i think it was we had quite a lot of guests turn up yeah. uh, special guests for uh for yeah. to play anyway <laughs> we digress yeah. uh, so i mean it's a it's a very interesting and, and somewhat different stance and and or start sorry and, and like coming at it through music but did you have in the early days influences on your photography obviously music did but were there photographers that you looked up to uh, people that inspired you back then that you know you wanted to do more of or be more like well it's interesting in when you start, you it's interesting when you start out you you don't you don't know about these names you just know you know in my case i wanted to capture some of my heroes and have a picture of it because i couldn't get into a band i wasn't good enough to play in bands or whatever so i wanted to capture some images of my heroes for my own wall really um so i wasn't really influenced by anybody at that stage i suppose the most influential person was a second-hand camera shop in harringay who used to sell sell me dodgy film which he bought from the raf and it was all out of date and no, nobody knew its speed and then the papers you know grade four would have slipped down to grade one and i had to learn how to print as well um but the music was very important to me going to see bands and i got myself a job actually uh, with a um a a little firm in um, Lamb Conduit Street in London, where we I used to get the second and third gig at the weekend. And I used to really enjoy, I, I, you know, I was going gradually going up the ladder of important gigs. But sadly, what happened was um, we hired the old Rainbow Theatre, fam famous music venue, to do um, an album cover for Alvin Stardust. And I stood in for Alvin Stardust because he was late. And I had three or four hundred girls baying for me, you know, and uh, and I didn't really like enjoy that very much. And then, sadly, this is a sad story now because Gary Glitter was also, you know, around, and you know, it, music became formulaic for me. It had lost its spontaneity. I loved the Stones, the Who, because you never knew what was going to happen. But when Gary Glitter came along and Stardust, they were very formulaic. You knew that on the third number. Alvin Stardust shirt would burst open. So I'd lost a lot of the spontaneity. And I was very lucky in the same agency, in the same building, was a sports agency. And one Saturday, they needed somebody to go to Spurs. And I'm a Spurs fan. So I said, well, I'll go. You know, it's better to do something, you know, take some pictures, even if they're not very good, at least I'll go. And I got a picture of Martin Chivers scoring a goal, which is a very rare event at Spurs. And it made all the papers. And I was thrilled then. I moved from it almost overnight from music to sport. I'd always been interested in football. I played for Sunday morning football till I was about 45. Um, so it was an easy, um, you know, crossover. Um, and then I moved into sport and, you know, really that, that's, that's how it happened. I got bored with music. I, I think in my, my life, I have reinvented myself about four or five times. You know, that when I think about it, I've gone from, uh, music photographer, sports photographer, picture editor at The Guardian, and then um, portraits. And you don't do it consciously. I didn't say well, one morning I'll wake up and be different. It just, it, it evolves, you know, it's organic. And, you know, what would I really love to do more than anything else? 
you know, probably still take a picture of Bob Dylan, you know, um, or Van Morrison, you know, uh, I choose people that I'm never going to be able to do. But um, in terms of music is still in me. I'm still a great music fan. As I say, I saw um, Richard Thompson the other night and I was as moved by that as I would have been 30 years ago watching Fairport Convention. Um, but sport is also another strand of me and um, I can't wait for Spurs to beat Manchester City on Saturday, on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and your lottery numbers to come in all at once. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, actually, you've you've transitioned through a couple of couple of questions we were going to talk about then, but Sorry. it's interesting you you know your organic movement through photography, and I think you know a lot of people will experience that sort of change where they'll fall in and out of love with different things, and and as is the way with life, you you find a new path because an opportunity opens up, and. I guess as you've moved through those, you didn't have any inspirations to begin with in the sense of people that inspired you. But how about later on, once you became more established, were there people that that inspired you then? Or even now, are there people whose work you look up to now? Yeah, I mean, of course, when I, shall we say, was getting to be more of a photographer than a fan, and I got into uh, music, and and music, what music helped me do was, was sell my pictures. Because I, I I I was the almost like the the messenger boy in the in the in the little little firm, and I had to go around to Melody Maker, NME, and sell these pictures. So I learned how to sell by selling my pictures and other people's pictures, and um, and that was a great great learning curve. But then when I got into sport, I was then very impressed with uh, the Sports Illustrated photographers. I used to get Sports Illustrated every every um, week and Walter I can never pronounce his name Walter Oose it's I double O double S and he was just a genius and and then you 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 know you see these great pictures of Muhammad Ali and and everything and that's what you try it, what it does it, it it frees you up to go looking for great pictures you don't copy each other but you think wow I'd never thought about being at the back of the stand. I never thought about being over a basketball net. And then you try it in, you know, I, I put a ca- strapped a camera in Hemel Hempstead of all places over a basketball team, uh, which was a, a picture I'd seen done in one of the New York uh, great uh, stadiums. And it worked. And it was so thrilling that you try, I tried different things when I, I was on the Observer th- this time and um, they gave me my head. They trusted when I went to a venue and went out on a limb a bit to get a picture. And that was a great thing. I mean, I, I remember going to football matches and being at the back of the stand, hoping that there'd be a line of forwards or a line of defenders. And where does that come from? I don't know. I've been, over the years, I've been accused of being graphically trained rather than photographically. And I can see it in some of my pictures. I can see shape and form is very important. Um, but I think all these things apply to every genre of photography. It's not just, um, I mean, I'm as happy now taking a picture on, um, you know, in, in Venice of a boat as I am, you know, hopefully one day waiting for Bob Dylan. You know, I can go, I, I can go, you know, either way. But I think the rules of photography, there are no rules. For me, there's no rules in photography. You know, you can shoot against the light, with the light, the wrong don't they say now that, that well one of the great phrases in photography is the best camera is the one you got with you and if you've got a phone you have to do it on a phone if you've got your Hasselblad digital then you do it on that but in terms of um, I think we're all photographers we all get caught out we all miss things every day 
And that's the great joy of photography is that you miss something every day and the next day you might get something. There's a tendency to think of sport as, as kind of spontaneous. You're having to react to the moment, but you're clearly doing some planning as well. How, how do you approach a sport shoot and, and what's the balance between reacting to what you see and being in the right position because you've planned it? Well, I, I was very lucky on the Observer, as I said earlier, they, they gave me my head. Um, I, we had a view that there's no point taking the pictures that are on, at that time, this is pre-Sky, that are going to be on Match of the Day that night. So in a way, I was showing you pictures that you couldn't see on telly. Say in boxing, you know, I used to get into the loser's dressing room in boxing um, rather than the winners because I thought, I, I felt, not all the time, but sometimes that would be the, the story, so-and-so losing, so-and-so retiring, so-and-so having a terrible time. But I, I would never um, insult them. I would try and celebrate their um, careers and take pictures of which I felt that the reader would enjoy. I mean, I, I never forget, I went, to, I went to a game in the East End, um, a, a cup game, and I took a picture of a bald-headed goalkeeper. And, um, and I, you know, this is a day before all, all goalkeepers, all, sorry, all footballers went bald. I don't know what it is, but they're all shaven now, shaven. And this is, sadly, this poor man had alopecia and he came running out of the dressing room. And I thought it's got to be a picture in this. And the best picture I had was him punting a ball up the field. And to me, it looked like his head, you know. And I got so many letters from people who said, I hate football, but I just love that picture. And what it was, it was a triangle, bald head, shorts, and um, the ball. And and it made it, and, and of course, captions make a picture, uh, make your pictures as well. On the Observer in those days, we had a great guy called Dougie Ray, who used to do the captions. And with this man punting a ball up the thing, which looked like a skull, it said, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. And, you know, that <laughs> appeals to people on a different level to Spurs have gone 2-0 up, you know, yeah. and... That's what I, I was lucky. I had people who encouraged me. The, the writing had a lighter touch. I mean, I've grown up with writers like Frank Keating, Hugh McIlvanny, uh, Chris Brasher, um, people like that. And it was never formulaic. It was always what we saw on the day. And we hoped that people would enjoy it. If they wanted the goals, if they wanted the sending off, they would watch Match of the Day. So what I'm trying to say is we I looked behind the scenes and I would put myself up in different parts of the ground, but you, you can get caught out. You know, I, I remember, I mean, one day, uh, funny enough on a European big night, uh, I went to Czechoslovakia and Gary Lineker scored four goals and I was at the wrong end. I was at the end where Peter Shilton was and we published a picture of Peter Shilton. God knows why, but in terms of it didn't matter that I didn't have the story. And I think that's what I tried to do, certainly on my Observer days. Interesting. I was going to say, I love that comment or the, the caption that was written for, for that goalkeeper. I think that also only appeals to readers of certain publications as well. I think maybe readers of The Sun might not quite get that. Well, can I, can I just make a point for all young budding uh, sports photographers, you know, if, if there's any listening to this, it must be really difficult now because all the papers now follow Sky. If there's an incident in Sky, you know, in the cricket today or in the football last night, I think, sadly, the wit has gone out of photography in newspapers. And I'm very sad about that. 
the wit, I, I don't mean any sort of um, rib tickling humor, just some gentle picture that takes a while to see and a picture that evolves and people get it after a few seconds or a few minutes, I suppose. And I, th I think it's a great shame. And I think a newspaper now should take a real risk and ignore Sky and do their own thing. And gradually, I'm sure um, readers would go back to it, you know, because if you want to see the goal, you watch Sky two minutes after it scored and goal uh, on, on TV. And what I used to try and show you was what you couldn't see. That's really interesting. I have a bit of a confession to make. Um, when I was, I'm a big sports fan as well. And when I was learning photography, you were actually one of my heroes for, for your work. And there's there's one particular shot that sticks in my mind, which was uh, an image of the table tennis player, uh, Lee Zen Shi, I think his name was. Yeah. Can you describe the shot and how you came to shoot it? Yeah, I um, again, on the, my observer days, this is in, you know, sort of uh, 80s, really. Um, we used to have to try and find a feature picture uh, it's, it's hard to believe, but in those days, the Observer Sports pages only had three pages. And one of my jobs was to try and find a picture for the inside back. And I, I learned that the uh, Chinese table tennis team were practicing not far from where I lived in Edmonton in North London. So I thought, well, I'll go down there, see if it makes a picture, Chinese table tennis and everything. And I go in there and it's, it's a, an average sports hall, nothing very, very special about it. And this one chap, did a high serve just as I walked in the doors. He just threw a high, I've never seen it before, threw a high serve. And the only thing I did was I sat down and I realized when I sat down that if I shot him from there, the angle I was at, there'd be an annoying green exit sign in the middle. So I moved around. I moved around so my background was completely black and prayed that he did it again. And he did it twice. And I got one the top of the throw, if you like, and then another one a little bit down. So that picture, you know, people go around now and say, oh, that same, oh, no, that's the guy who took the table tennis picture. They don't remember my name, but they remember the, the shot. And it, I owe that guy a career in sports photography, really. It's just one of those magic moments that worked. But the irony is, for all you budding photographers out there, they used it as a deep double all the way down the inside page and then left my byline off. <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's funny you say that actually people people don't remember your name when i was chatting to my other half this morning and she's not in photography um but i was explaining who who we were going to be talking to and i said oh there's definitely a picture you'll know and i showed her the picture went, yeah I, I know that i've seen that picture before there you go my point, my point. <laughs> yeah point point, point proven yeah. um so touching on on something you've talked about a little while ago with the um, like the, the way pictures are used in newspapers now. And I guess there's kind of two questions to this. Uh, the first one, we see a lot of average pictures being used now or, or just, well, just lots of pictures that aren't as as graphic or grabbing or, or intriguing as your picture of Li Zhenxi, for example. You know, why why do you think we're getting so many poor pictures? Is it something to do with picture editors or is it just the, the churn they need so many? Well, I think when I, um, you know, talking about these career changes, I, I, I had done the sports for three or four, sorry, music three or four years. Then I, I went into sports for about 10 or 12 years. And one day I was at a party where I heard that the picture editor of The Guardian was leaving. And I was 40 then. And I, I, I was lucky I did three, three World Cups and three Olympics. 
But I'd also been through Heisel Stadium, which was the worst thing of my career, where I saw 38 people die, which was really sad. And a little bit of me was feeling, well, if that's sport, you can have it. And the independent had just come along and it was, you know, brilliant photography, brilliant printing and no advertising. Now, if you ever look at a paper, just look at the amount of advertising in a paper, which spoils the layout. You know, um, in the old days, we used to, they used to say the adverts were there to hold the pictures up, you know, put them on a mantelpiece. But in terms of the indie had a, a complete free run at a whole pa- a broadsheet paper, great printing, great photographers and no advertising. So they could run eight column pictures across the, the whole top of the page or all the way down. And I used to do talks on my photography. And at the end, someone often used to say, Mr. McKay, great stuff, but don't you think the independence great for photography? And I thought, you bastard, let me have a crack. And I, when I heard about this Guardian job, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to knock the independent out of the Fleet Street. And I took on the job with that in mind. And gradually, we had awful printing. We had a, an older set of photographers who didn't really understand it. But I think what I brought to it was a passion for photography. And I argued for stuff to go in the pages, certainly in the first couple of years, that nobody really understood. I remember there was a great sub-editor, a guy called um, Brian McDermott. One night, I'd only been there a couple of weeks, and I wanted a picture on page three. And he said, Amy said, I, I don't understand this picture at all. And I said, Brian, believe me, this will look great in print. It'll it'll really work. And he was an old style sub-editor. And he went away and he came back about an hour later and he was sort of, um, you know, grating his teeth. He said, go on then, let's run it. Let's see see who's right. And the next day, I'll never forget, this guy, they used to come in about midday, just put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you were right. And that one time, he just realised what you could do with pictures in newspapers. Um, And... Sadly, near the end of my career on The Guardian, he used to come up to me and say, these pictures aren't as good as you used to be, you know, and it just ran its, it just ran its circle. You know, it's, it's time. And I have done my, done my 12. 12 years is a long time to picture edit other people's work. And I loved doing it for the first five years. Next five years, I kind of knew, you know, what's the word, was um, I knew how to do it. And the last two or three years I was coasting and I needed to go back to photography and I went back out on the road to do portraits because I thought it'd be wrong to go back to sports, something that I was well known for. And I thought sport had moved on. Whereas in fact, I don't think it has moved on. What has moved on is the cameras. Interesting. Um, I mean, that transition back into shooting, you've obviously, you learn things as a picture editor. You, you, you started as a photographer, you learned a lot of things as a photographer, you became a picture editor, then you went back to being a photographer. Do you think actually being a picture editor improved your photography, changed your photography or changed your approach to photography? It became part of my philosophy, really, because I spent a long time trying to get good portraits of people into the Guardian's arts pages. It was it was strange, that the, the change from a sports specialist to being more interested in art more interested in the arts pages, more interested in books, more interested. And I was growing and I, I, you know, picked up on Ajay as a photographer. I picked up on, on um, John Blake, uh, John Blakemore as a photographer. I was learning what I hadn't learned when I was a kid. I mean, when people come to me and say, what, what do you think I should do if I want to be a photographer? Go to college, learn about photography, learn about photographers and look at any exhibition you can 
get as many books out of the library because I didn't do that till I was about 35. And because I was self-taught, uh, I knew how to sell a picture. I knew how to take a picture. I knew how to process a picture. But, you know, I've, uh, over the years, I mean, uh, you know, there's a great friend of mine now, a, a landscape photographer called Michael Kenner. And I try and turn every kid I speak to onto Michael Kenner because he's a genius. And I once tried to do pictures in his style. I used to go to Real in North Wales where he took some great pictures and uh, I took, I, I had a go at it. And uh, I said, why, why aren't these working to Michael one day? I said, I'm not getting anywhere near your quality. And, and he says, because I do all mine by moonlight. And the penny dropped, <laughs> it was moonlight, you know, and the, and time moves around in moonlight and um, whereas when you just go out and do one two five a second or whatever nothing moves but you take something at half an hour at um, f11 mist comes in mood comes in time comes in and i i learned a big lesson that time but we're still great friends <laughs> um okay and uh, i mean actually that leads into a, another question of you know you you were a self-taught photographer but if if you could go back to the younger you now what what would be the biggest piece of photographic advice you would give yourself if i could go back to being about 19 i would have stayed at the polytechnic of central london under some of the greatest uh, lighting teachers that the, you know walter nuremberg was at um, poly of central london when I was, I, I, I went to the Poly of Central London um, to do a BA in photography. And what happened was, like a lot of colleges, coffee breaks got longer, dinner breaks got longer, drinking got longer. And I thought, I'm not getting anywhere here. So I went freelance. I just went out and did it on my own because I got frustrated. But if I looking back on it, if I'd have stayed with Walter Nuremberg for another six months you know he, he could light the whole of a car factory in Birmingham you know with with lights in those days were very different to they are now and I would have learned so much more but you get impatient I'm, I'm a freelancer at heart I'm a I'm a snapper I'm a, I, I duck and dive you know um, but if I if I could tell myself to do one more thing it was to get to attend all of Walter's um, lessons and uh, because lighting is the most important thing in photography, um, you know, and if, if I'd have mastered light when I was 20, it would have done me a lot of good. That's interesting. interesting. Um, you, um, you obviously started in the days of film mm -hmm. and you've been through the transition to digital. Do you still shoot film? And what role does digital photography play in your photography these days? Well, I... I um, I used to like, I still, I still prefer film to digital. I think what the main thing film does is slows me down. You know, I still, have, if, I did, if I had a good portrait to do tomorrow, a good face somewhere, I would shoot two rolls of Portra 400 um, and I would shoot 24 frames and I would be happy that I'd get something in those 24. When I use my digital, which I have got a Canon 5D, which isn't very sexy, but it's a brilliant camera and it goes off every time and it's got me out of lots of trouble. I will shoot 60 pictures and then I give myself an editing problem. You know, I don't know which one, um, but I, you know, looking back on it, but then I live out in the country. I'd be daft to be um, into film now. Where do I get it processed? Um, 
I bought myself a Hasselblad digital camera, um, which I haven't used. I don't like the feel of it. I've spent four and a half grand on this digital camera. Um, why don't I use it? It doesn't feel right in my hands. You know, it's just the balance is all wrong. And it's just a very interesting thing about why something feels right. Um, and I'm getting off to the point here, but I live in the country. If I was to go to Albra today and I have to do a book festival in a couple of weeks time, I will shoot it all digital and that night put it on a screen and the next morning send it over to the customer. And that is, that is being pragmatic. Um, would my pictures of those authors be better on film? I'm not so sure. And I'm sure scientists, physicists could prove to you that there is no difference or but I, I suppose I like the idea a lot of these portrait pictures are still under my bed, and I quite like that. Because mm. that speed and that speed of turnaround, has is it, is it um, changed the expectations of the people you're shooting for, the clients? Well, yeah, I mean, everyone wants it, you know, um, straight away. Um, I mean, say these kids doing football now at, at um, Spurs or Wembley or wherever, you see them by the side of the pitch with a laptop and they're sending pictures straight back you know, goal gets scored in front of them and the pitchers are going straight back. Um, and I, I find that, I mean, how do you picture edit 60 photographers at Wembley's pitchers in half an hour? You know, it's an impossible thing to do. And maybe that's what you were saying earlier, the pitchers have got a little bland. I think what happens is if there's a goal, the pitcher editor comes over and says, did you get that goal? It doesn't matter what it, how good it is. It's, they want the goal. Whereas in my time, they wanted us another story, a different story, a, a different viewpoint. And I feel sorry for young photographers now because they have to go down the central line of what was on Sky. And um, I know I'm blaming Sky for everything, but, <laughs> but, you know, I don't see any point in publishing the same picture as Sky because I saw it last night. Yeah. And I'll tell you another interesting thing. I've stopped reading match reports. I used to read match reports of Dundee versus Hibernian because I thought it was a writer's art. It was a brilliant thing. Now I don't read them. It's a real sadness. And that's another thing of TV and Sky. Before we go to bed, we know everything. Whereas in, when, in my world, you used to have to wake up to find out everything in the paper the next day. Now, you know, I mean, I, I flick on Sky News at 11. I know everything. What can I read in the Telegraph that was printed five hours earlier? It's a big problem, a really big problem. I think newspapers have to become more feature papers and have a, a you know the background story between mess why messi left um um port Bar barcelona not him arriving at paris but the whole story behind it and and do two thousand words and have a really poignant picture now whether that would sell papers i don't know because all editors want everything that's been on telly which seems to me to be daft Mm. Yes, I mean, we're, it feels like they're just, you know, repeating what's gone before. Or, you know, yeah. everyone's trying to reinvent the wheel, but not actually reinvent anything. Um, okay, so you said you've got a you've got a shoot coming up in in Albra soon. But what what is next for you? What's keeping you occupied and, and busy at the moment? And is there a new project on the way? Is there something you're working on? Uh, something that's still like an itch you've still got to scratch? I, I like the Aubrey thing. I, I, I work, I've done about 10 of them now, and, it, and I set up a little studio and I get 30 writers, you know, in front of my lens with a little lamp. And uh, it does, that makes, that does make the adrenaline buzz because 
I do love people. I mean, that's, if I've missed anything in the last 18 months, it's not knocking on a door, going into somebody's house and then looking around for a picture straight away. And, you know, whether, say, we come in here, you'd go towards where the light is. And and I love that. I did. I, I found it a privilege to go into people's houses uh, and their homes and to spend an hour with them. I found that a real privilege. And I missed that. I really have missed that. Um, and I notice now newspapers aren't getting to as many people in their homes as they did two years ago. It's just not happening. People are buying stock pictures. Uh, great for stock libraries, but in terms of people are buying stuff in rather than going to their homes and because the interviews are being done on zoom um and and so for you 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 know you're hoping you're going to get back to maybe visiting people's homes I, well i'd hope i mean i'm at a different i'm at a, a later career, uh, stage in my career now you know i mean now i have to i mean I, I used to react to the phone all the time the phone would ring and i'd go to a to a, a portrait of a boxer or a portrait of a writer or whatever the phone hasn't been ringing as much in the last 18 months for anybody um and i miss that adrenaline of um if a phone rings in my house and no one answers it i get really cross because i think that's a job you know to them it's an annoying phone to me it's that could be the financial times saying go and do chris co you know in his house in the lovely village of um, Monk's home, you know, and I, I, that's the adrenaline I miss. And that isn't happening. I don't, I'm not sure it's happening for anybody at the moment. So we have to motivate ourselves. We have to uh, stay that on this daft little festival I'm going to do is only three days. And there's me thinking it's, it's, it's my whole work world, but it's going to be three days of adrenaline, three days of chat with people, three days of maybe missing a great shot, maybe making a great shot. And I shall enjoy that, you know, um, and then I'm making a series of films. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this on here, but uh, I, I'm making a series of films for one of the big picture agencies of, of their 10 elder statesmen. And I did a TV series a few years ago, and it's basically a, a kind of a revamp of that. So I'll be going to people's houses, and photo, uh, I shall be doing the Andrew Marr bit, if you like. And um, I, I shall enjoy that because I love hearing how people got going. There's a, a great guy called Patrick Ward who lives on a boat in uh, Hampton Court or somewhere. And uh, he's got all his pictures on it, on his boat, on his barge. You know, that I can already hear, hear, like we're talking here, I can already hear questions about for that. And he's photographed street pictures in the 70s and 80s. So I, sh I, I enjoy, I do enjoy people. I do, um, I say in this TV series, I went around the country interviewing people. And I found, because, I, because I've been there, I've been, you know, I have messed up pictures. I have learnt about other photographers. I've been there. I've, I've, without being arrogant, I've kind of learnt a lot about it. And the great thing is I don't know everything about it, and I do love going to find out a bit more. And that's what this little series will do. It will give me a bit more. You did a series for the BBC a few years back. How did that come about? Uh, well, I was approached, and um, they would ask. they asked me, would I be interested in doing the history of photography in Britain from, you know, 1850, you know, when um, <laughs> it was all invented. And I, 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 I loved it. A bit like when I heard about the picture editing of The Guardian, it just felt right. And I had somebody who believed in me, did a, you know, one of these kind of tests that you have to do. The worst thing about it was <laughs> they're very scripted, the BBC. You know, they like you to have a script of, I don't know, 200 words and, and, and spit those out 
doing your thing. Whereas I'm much more, I'd like to duck and dive and say, you know that bit where you said about the window, can we talk, you know, and they, they these young producers, they couldn't stand it that I went off, off script, you know, <laughs> but I couldn't learn 200 words, you know, and I was so nervous of, uh, I remember a couple of things, you know, you'd have to say in 1876, this happened. And, and I'd be up all night thinking, Christ, I've got to remember it's 1876. And of course, it would never come up. It would never come up. <laughs> um, but I, apart from that, it was fabulous to go all around the country and to go from, you know, the matchbox cameras um, of, of 1850 to a girl shooting pictures on her phone. And I, I was t- asking her, Molly was her name, I was asking her to teach an old Luddite like me how you could take good good pictures. And she was brilliant. And so we, we went from that original wet photography right up to the phone. And um, and people, one great photographer that I met, he downloads everything off the internet. He doesn't go out of his studio and then creates, he copies and creates pictures. And they're often of um, uh, MOD sites and things like that. Things, places you couldn't even get to. He might be doing Chris's garden now, for all I know. <laughs> but you know, it's just—it's interesting. What is photography? And it, it, the program taught me that you—that it's—you can download from the web, you know, maps of um, Google Map, and you blow it up, blow it up, blow it up, and then it becomes something else, and you color it and whatever. And these these things sell for a lot of money. Interesting. And okay, just we're going to come back to your portraits briefly. If there was. If there's one person you've already said Bob Dylan, so I'm not going to let you have Bob Dylan or Van Morrison. But who, who would you love to photograph? If you know, if if Spurs actually scored a goal on the weekend, uh, and therefore your lottery numbers came up, and you got the chance to photograph whoever, who would it be? Well, it's interesting. See, with sports, I am now a fan, and they're not my heroes because I learned this when I was travelling around with with the, with these England teams and stuff. You know. When, when, you're, when you're young, they're your heroes. When you get a little bit older, you've got nothing in common with them. You know, if, if, if you take, say, Sterling of Manchester City, he's a young, bright guy, great footballer. But I'm not, you know, I'm years, eras away from his music, eras away from his close sense, eras away from his money. Uh, so I have nothing in common. So I, 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 I think for me, um, I would photograph somebody of my own era, um, I would, I would have, you know, loved. I'd love to do Bob Dylan, as I said before. Um, so I, I suppose it would be an older musician who I've probably photographed way back. Um, Charlie Watts. I'd love to photograph Charlie Watts, who's sadly not very well. Um, I did him years ago, um, years and years ago, and he was in a white suit. And I'll never forget, my young kid's a drummer. Um, my, my oldest kid now is, is a drummer. And I was humming and hawing whether to bring him with me. And I, saw, I lost my nerve. I thought, this is too big a job, one of the Rolling Stones as a portrait session. And I went to see Charlie and um, I said, love you to meet you. And he said, oh, I love you to meet you. So, you know, and we got on really well. And I said, I was going to bring my son over. Oh, he said, you should have brought him. We could have had a jam. And I've regretted that all my life, you know, that I didn't get my son Ben into a, a jamming session with Charlie Watts. So maybe if it happened, if Charlie was well enough, maybe we could do that. A good answer. I like it. Well, um, Chris, how are you getting on for questions? Are you? No, I think I think Eamon's given us a wonderfully entertaining story of his life. And um, in the process, 
I think you should be thinking about an autobiography now, as you have the title, Waiting for Bob Dylan. Waiting for Bob Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for Bob Goddard. Yeah. No, that was brilliant. Thank was you very right? much, yeah. Eamon. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was great. I think it was, um, yeah, very interesting. Um, and, and so many useful pointers, I think, for anyone listening. Uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned there, but also just entertainment and, and, and enjoyment. And hopefully it will inspire people to go and uh, look at some of your perhaps some of your sports pictures and then even remember your name. <laughs> <laughs> if I can leave one, if I can leave the, the, the listeners to one, one thing, if, if they're at college, go to every other lecture on every other course that you can get into, you know, whether it's fashion design graphics, it's amazing what you learn off other courses. Yes, we are photographers mainly, but we can also be inspired by, I mean, 22-year-old bloke might not want to go to a fashion lecture. But it's amazing what you can learn, and it can turn your head into fashion. You know, you might go to college and think you want to be a sports photographer, but if you hear a fashion lecture by a great fashion photographer, that might just inspire you to go into fashion. And I think kids don't, don't take advantage of what's in their buildings every day and to try and go to something different every day. And you could always walk out after half an hour if it doesn't inspire you. But go and listen to people that you, uh, how can I put it, who, who just might inspire you. Don't don't ignore it because it's a great opportunity and I wish I hadn't wasted mine. That's a great bit of advice. And mm -hmm. I think um, one thing, photography is very good at pigeonholing people. You know, you're a landscape photographer, you're a sports mm -hmm. photographer. But actually, we can photograph anything. Mm -hmm. And I think the the excitement that you get and the experience you get from trying different things even if you get it wrong is really important yeah. i think that the learning experiences of, of getting it wrong when you photograph something else is is just as valuable as as you know getting it right first time sure sure if you learn <laughs> if, if you learn assuming you're not closed off to learning yeah well <laughs> great well thank you very much Eamon. no thank you thanks that for looking after me sir thank you Thank you very much for, for joining us.